We are at the time of the calendar year when I begin to think about the church's schedule and the fact that vacations come and people are in and out. And usually for me, that's July and August. But June for this year has been a month that lots of people have been away. And we've had folks uh, having surgeries and just other reasons that people have been in and out. And, and when we do a consecutive expository ministry, that sometimes leaves a lot of gaps uh, when people are away, unless you're catching up with messages on sermon audio or find some other way to um, uh, keep up with what we're doing here. Um, but I'm not fully... Um, clear in my mind what I want to do for the summer months. I usually do something a little bit different. Uh, but again, we have folks away from us this morning, and I was thinking, as I was thinking, should I go back to Romans? Should I um, uh, do something different? And, and I really thought that what we did last week was incomplete, and um, I thought it was helpful to a degree. And uh, Mike, who asked the question, greeted me afterwards and threw his arm around me and said, Pastor, I love you. (laughs) Because that resulted from the fact that he had a question that he came across online. Um, We mentioned there's a professor out in Westminster Theological Seminary in California, in Escondido, who he's kind of, I'd say, sort of like a provocateur in some of his writings. He, he, he tends to make statements that are very strong and filled with opinions. And a lot of times you just wonder, um, you know, where some of it came from. And one of his opinions, and it's shared by many, I think he's influenced many in this direction, is basically the contention that to be a Baptist means to have any kind of connection with what's Reformed is just simply out of court. Reformed people are not Baptists. Um, And uh, he takes that up from a vantage point that's not just that we have a difference of opinion about how much water goes on who and when. Um, It's not just a question of does baptism replace circumcision and that was the argument of course of the reformers that we baptize our children because Abraham circumcised his children and Abraham and his seed equals believers in their seed and I endeavored to take up that question last week and to say that we want the covenant sign to be upon all the seed of Abraham but we see in the New Testament that the seed of Abraham is redefined that the seed of Abraham is not just Jews who get circumcised, but it's believers who get baptized. Believers become the seed of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed who believe. It's through faith we become heirs of the promise. We become the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians chapter 3. And then we also noted that with respect to what they claim is the doctrine of the covenant somewhat mandating baptism uh, for infants and children because Abraham and his seed were baptized. Uh, They basically say there is this covenant theology that makes um, uh, uh, baptism necessary. And since covenant theology played a part in not the Reformation period, but the post-Reformation period, um, that somehow... Baptists can't be reformed, which is strange, because if the Reformation took place in the 16th century, and you have the covenant theology coming along in the 17th century, then how can Baptists be excluded? Because I mean, Baptists were there in the 16th century. And, and you know what they do is they do something even further strange. 
And that this particular guy, what he does is he says, well, Baptists can't be reformed because uh, of a doctrine that came along later than Baptists existed. They existed in the 16th century. They got persecuted by the Reformed for their Baptistic beliefs. But uh, covenant theology came along, and now we can't be reformed in any sense. Now, you know, we, we, labels are not important to us. We don't care if you call us reformed or do not call us reformed. But we do think that there are certain things in the reformed tradition that we like and we approve of. All those solos that we mentioned last week and that we celebrate during Reformation Day when that comes along in October is that we are in that tradition. And so if you look at all the different traditions that are available and you say, what's on offer in the Christian church in terms of different traditions of understanding and interpretation of of Christianity, what's on offer? We have Catholicism on offer. And uh, though Catholicism is a wonderful idea because it expresses the notion of universality, that the Catholic is a, is a word that means universal, now, we believe in the universal church, but we don't believe in the universal church that presided over by the Bishop of Rome. And so we're not really in that tradition, and especially there's a lot of the traditions that come into Catholicism uh, were that which the Reformation was looking to oppose and stand against. Well, the, so Catholicism is not where we are, although there's a sense in which um, the history of Catholicism, particularly in its teachers and early, earlier times, you know, we sign on to. You know, we say there's an element of Christian truth that's there, but there's a whole bunch of else that's there that just simply gets in the way. That's my understanding of Catholicism. But universality, so, you know, you can give me the Catholic label and I won't recoil against it, even though I'm not a Catholic and by the definition of what Catholicism um, um, says is its distinguishing features. But I could call myself a Catholic and that I believe in the universal church. Well, then there's also, there was a, in church history, there was a division in the church east and west that took place in, uh, was it uh, 1054 AD? You all aware of this? This is a new thing to you in history. You had a division with the eastern and western church, and you have a bunch of churches then in the Greek-speaking world, or in the eastern world, that came to be known as Orthodox. And the Orthodox churches divided over a couple of things. We're going to mention one, I think, somewhere along the line in our expositions in John, Something, no, I won't get into it. I won't get into what that division was. But certainly the authority of the Pope of Rome was one of the things that they opposed. But yet, orthodoxy is not where we stand. Although, I'm orthodox. I like the label. I want to claim it. And even though there are people that call themselves orthodox that don't represent precisely what I believe, I still think I could take the orthodox label and say it's descriptive of me. So I'm, in the one sense, Catholic and believing in the universality of Christian truth and the universality of the church. I'm orthodox in the sense that the Orthodox Church holds to the, the first seven ecumenical councils, which I basically agree with, the findings of the first seven ecumenical councils. And that's what they're big on, is those early ecumenical councils. So in that sense, I'm an Orthodox Christian holding to Orthodox views of Trinity and the deity of Jesus and those truths that were articulated during that period of time. But, uh, but I'm not an Orthodox person as those distinctives, although you can't deny me the label if I, if I agree with the first seven um, councils of the church. Well, well what about uh, Lutheranism? Um, a 
part of the Reformation was uh, the Lutheran movement and Luther himself and the church in Germany and other parts of that region uh, designated themselves as Lutherans and they had a distinctive teaching on sacraments. They had a distinctive teaching um, that was uh, in their Augsburg Confession that a lot of it I love. A lot of it I agree with. A lot of it is good. But some of their views of sacraments I don't hold to. And uh, there's things about Lutheranism that really is not descriptive of me. You go into an ortho- a Lutheran church and you'll see a crucifix and a lot of things that they believe about the worship of God. Uh, um, um, other people in this time of the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation, departed from. And those were the people that came to call themselves Reformed. But with respect to justification by faith, with respect to a lot of the things that Lutherans emphasize, I say, hey, you know, I'm not a Lutheran, but I love Luther. So, you know, don't deny me attachment to a part of the church that in a lot of ways I benefit from and I appreciate. But I'm not a Lutheran in that sense. But I do identify more with the Reformed than anything else or anything that comes after it. Then the other fun, funny thing that uh, this writer from Escondido spoke about is that these Baptists who came along during the period of the Reformation um, that he would deny the title Reformed to because they don't hold to a 17th century doctrine even though they're existing in the 16th century. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? He says these Baptists are actually quasi dispensationalists and the dispensationalists of course they came along in the 19th century so you have a movement that was in the 16th century that can't have a label from the 16th century because of a doctrine that came later called covenant theology but are actually are really dispensationalists which came two centuries later Strange, strange idea. But again, the labels to me are not important. But what goes into this? Well, in a sense, what goes into this is that there are people who develop strident notions and dogmatic views and become provocateurs about certain beliefs because they have an agenda. They're looking to further an agenda. In the case of this man and a number of other people he's associated with, it's an agenda that's looking to uphold a very strict view of confessionalism in the church. And his confession is the Westminster Confession of Faith and its teaching with respect to covenants that are found in chapter 7. You'll see that in our hymn book where we do have the Westminster Confession of Faith in our hymn book that's put out by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Trinity Hymnal. It has the statement about the covenants in chapter 7. Well, if you had a copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, you will see that in chapter 7, there's a difference. It's not the same doctrine, although in many respects, it does echo the words of chapter 7 of God's covenant with man. But uh, I think there's like three or maybe four paragraphs in the London Confession of Faith. This has uh, six paragraphs in the London Confession of Faith. And so a guy like this teacher in Escondido is saying, how can Baptists be Reformed when definitionally a Reformed person holds to this Reformed confession? 
And they're not agreeing with the totality of this Reformed confession. And hence, Baptists cannot be Reformed. Even though historically, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument to say that Baptists can't be Reformed because of a 17th century teaching that negates the fact that in essence they were in perfect agreement with the reformers except in that one area of the sacrament of baptism or the ordinance of baptism how much water you put on so so basically what they're doing is they're blowing this much larger than historically it ever was and what they're doing you know somebody said that I think it was Luther who said that um, that the Bible, the way people approach the Bible is they approach the Bible as if it was a, a nose of wax that they could twist in any way they want. And uh, sort of like what Paul's saying about uh, uh, the ignorant and the unstable rest the scriptures to their own destruction. They, they take it out of its natural proportions. Um, and they're not content to embrace scripture for what it actually is saying. They twist it and they turn it. Well, you know, you can do that with the Bible. Uh, Paul says people do it. And it's easy and easier to do it with history. To take the history and twist it all out of shape, especially when you have an agenda. Especially when you have something to prove. And this whole matter of confessionalism that has come into our own Reformed Baptist churches among a certain group of people who say that they're Reformed and Baptistic and hold to the 1689 Confession, um, does really the same thing. They want to get confessionalism, strict adherence to the confession of faith, and they try to make an argument um, that fails to understand either what the confession is and what the scriptures are. And it's an interesting thing, because a lot of this is done by historians. Uh, this fellow from Escondido, he's an historian. He teaches church history. He's allied with another guy that teaches church history. I think it was, he used to teach in, um, in Philadelphia at Westminster. I think he's now at uh, uh, um, Something Grove in Pennsylvania. What's that place? Amos went there. I can't think of its name. Something like that. Something like that. It's in Pennsylvania. Grove I think City Grove City College. I think that's what it is. I think he teaches there. I could be wrong, but he teaches in you know seminary level instruction and uh, colleges and seminaries. Um, and even in our own Baptist circles, there's a group of guys that are very very strongly promoting confessionalism. Who their background is church history. Um, the problem is that these historians are looking to make a case about confessionalism, joining it together with historical arguments that ignores both the history of confessions, in my estimation, and also the way in which scripture itself teaches and instructs us. The problem with this view of confessionalism is a failure to understand that confessions are historic documents. And they take place in history where ideas and controversies are going on all around. Where ministers meet in given places, whether it was Westminster Assembly, whether it was the London ministers of um, 1689, whether it's uh, the people that met at uh, Augsburg and had the Lutheran Augsburg Confession or the Heidelberg Confession, in um, uh, I'm sorry, the Belgian Confession of the Reformed Churches, there was an historic background that influenced the things that they said. And the way placed emphasis on things that were current matters of 
theological concern and interest to their times, to their day. If we got a bunch of pastors together today and we put together a confession of faith, you know what? I think we would emphasize certain things that are not in these confessions at all. Because we have new problems. We have new controversies. There was no such thing as dispensationalism in the 19th century. So there's no reason to say anything. I'm sorry, in the 16th century. So there's no need to say anything about dispensationalism because it was unknown. There was not a charismatic movement back then. There was not uh, many of these confusing notions with respect to sexual identity that exists in the church today. That churches have to make statements about uh, uh, same-sex marriage and things like that. You don't find anything like that in these ancient confessions because they were not problems of that time. And so they're not looking to state, what does the scripture say about spiritual gifts? Or what does the scripture say about this notion of uh, dispensations or this notion of um, same-sex marriage? We have to deal with that today. And so our confession would look different if we were just doing it. And let's say there was never a confession that existed in the world today. And we were charged with coming up with a confession of faith. Well, we're going to have different areas of emphasis. It's not that we're going to lose sight of what the church has historically believed and taught. But it's just we're going to have other concerns that are going to come to the heart of the things that we are concerned about. Mike, did you have a question? Yeah, I mean, aren't we doing sort of something to address those issues? You know, like with the Dallas statement on, on, or some of the, you know, the old 78 Chicago statement on inerrancy. Yeah, but those are not, those are not widely uh, adhered to. Those are things you got to look up on the internet to find out information about. I mean, churches don't subscribe to those things. I've hardly looked at those things in years, and uh, it's not really part of anything that's ecumenically accepted. And some of those statements, because it is our issue today, there tends to be overstatement. Because what we're doing is we're opposing something that's in our time that we feel is a threat. And so we feel under the gun. And so in the, in the 15th century, the 16th century, the 17th century, nothing would be said about those things, but it's not that the Bible is driving us to address those issues. You see, it's our problem today. We're looking to be defining this. And so our danger would be overstatement, or our danger would be reaction against the current stuff that's going on and feel the need to address this. Now, this is true in these confessions as well. That's my point. And when you come to this matter of 17th versus 16th century, this whole matter of a covenant theology that develops in the 17th century, you have to ask the question, what's going on there? Why why, why are they emphasizing this covenant theology thing? Now, let me tell you something. I went online, I read uh, an article... It was on the uh, Ligonier uh, website, and it was authored by this fellow from Escondido, in which he basically begins the art- article by saying that it was a formally held view that covenant theology began in the 17th century with theologians, and he names Johannes Cassius as one of them, a Dutch theologian, and some other guys. And uh, now we see that that's not true. Now, he doesn't say why we see that's not true. He just asserts. He just asserts. That's no longer true. And then he says, covenant theology is nothing less or more than the theology we find in the Bible. And then he says, it's the theology that we find 
throughout church history. And again, assertion after assertion after assertion after assertion that comes from the pen of a, of a church historian that doesn't have a single historical reference point. It just makes assertions. And I began to just think about some of these assertions, and I began to look up some of the things he's asserting, and I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, it's not true. It's simply not true. In fact, I sent out a little uh, text to Greg Nichols to confirm this. I asked him the question, is this covenant theology from the 17th century, is it found in any of these 16th century sources? Is it found in Calvin's Institutes? I'm looking for it. I don't see it. Is it found in the Belgic Confession of the Reformed Churches? I don't see it. Is it found in the Heidelberg Catechism of the Reformed Churches? And that's all 16th century documents. No, you don't find it. You find it in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is 17th century, the 1640s, that this was put together. You find it in the London Confession of Faith, which is 17th century, 1689. But you don't find this idea earlier. Now, let's deal first of all with the idea. What is this covenant theology stuff? Well, covenant theology is something that was devised amongst Dutch Reformed theologians at a time, I mentioned this last week, but I really didn't go into it with any measure of detail, when the churches of the Reformed churches of Holland were under attack by what was called Arminianism, something called the Remonstrance that was put together by a group of theologians connected with a guy by the name of Jacobus Arminius. And we hear about Arminianism today, Calvinism today. And what the concern was of these folks was this matter of this decree of God of election and how it relates to the free will of man. And they were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, man does have some freedom uh, to respond to the gospel invitation. And so we have to address this matter of how this election of God's grace accords with human free will. And so in response to that, you had what was called the Canons of Dort that gave the Calvinist position on the matter. But the, the criticism is, this is very strong theology. This is theology that doesn't seem to give place to the breadth of mercy that we seem to see in God, the greatness of love, uh, the, the free offer of the gospel. And uh, we need to do something to take this Calvinistic position and maybe soften it a little bit. You had an addition to the Ar- Arminians who came along, a, a group of people called the Amaraldians. Uh, <laughs> this was a guy named Amarot. And uh, I believe he was French. I think it was the University... I'm sorry? What? University of Saumur, I think it is. Again, I'm just trying to recollect things I've read on this subject. And Basically, he came along, and his issue was the atonement. His issue was that this matter of an atonement that's only for the elect, how does that square with what seems to be the universality of the saving act of Jesus for the world? How do we get a world atonement in an elect-only atonement? And so you have what's today called four-point Calvinists. And there were a number of people that were influenced by this Amaraldian teaching, now, many of them we respect. Richard Baxter that was a Puritan, had held to it. Um, J.C. Ryle held to what would be called, I guess, a four-point Calvinist position, and he's known by a lot of Reformed writers. 
Anyway, so you have these attacks upon the Reformed Confession, and you have within the University of Leiden, where Cosius taught, um, in fact, he was taught by a Puritan guy by the name of William Ames. So a lot of the Puritans that taught this covenant of grace stuff that ended up in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was because there was persecution in England that brought many of the British theologians to go to Holland. And they were invited, many of them, to teach and to study. And this guy Cosius, to whom um, is attributed a great deal of the of the heavy lifting of the covenant of grace idea that spread it in a book that he wrote in the 1640s, uh, he was under the instruction of the Puritan William Ames. Anyway, so they got this all this crossbreeding. I'm trying to give you just a sense of what's happening. Well, what are they trying to do? Well, again, their issue is not baptism. Let's get a doctrine of covenant in order to give a justification for baptizing children. It was not in anybody's mind to do that sort of thing. What was in their mind was how do we soften Calvinism? And they figured covenant is an idea that does express something in which God enters into relationship with people and says, I will be a God to you, you will be my people. He offers his grace and salvation to people who will come to believe. And so they say, this is it. We got covenant. Covenant is a way that we can present the gospel in a way that's not so harsh. It doesn't reflect badly upon the character of God because it's showing his grace and mercy um, in ways that election doesn't define it and describe it. So you understand what I'm saying? Is that you be, you, when you begin with the doctrine of decree, it can seem to be a hard and harsh teaching that needs some kind of relief from some quarter that will help us see God's character a brim with mercy, filled with love, filled with grace, filled with provision, putting Christ on offer to all who will come to God through faith in Him. And they say, well, covenant is the idea that will do it. And so what they did is they took the idea of covenant, that's a biblical idea, and they related it to three things that they say happens. Number one, that there is a covenant of redemption. That's the first one, the covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption, you have to understand this now. This is something that's pre-time. It's pre-temporal. It doesn't have to do with God's covenant with mankind, because mankind doesn't exist in eternity. It's an eternal covenant that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit make with one another. And it's a covenant that the Trinitarian, the members of the Trinity engage in, where the Father says, I elect a people, the Son says, I'll go to die for the people that you elect, and the Spirit says, I'll come and bring the salvation that the Father purposes and the Son provides in terms of their uh, bringing it to them. Wonderful idea. And it's, it embraces aspects of biblical truth, of a God who initiates salvation, purposes and plans salvation. But it's really an idea that you can search the scriptures in vain to find. You might find elements of the thing here and there, but you really don't see this covenant of redemption. And then we have a, uh, not just a covenant of, that's a pre-temporal covenant, but we have a, a covenant that's um, pre-fall a pre-fall covenant. So we have a, a pre-time covenant, that's the covenant of redemption, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entering into covenant with one another. And then you have a covenant of works, and that's pre-fall. 
That's mankind coming from the hand of his maker and God entering into a covenant with humanity saying in essence that this whole matter of the obedience to the command that every tree of the garden you may freely eat but the tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if you eat that dying you will die that that constitutes something of a covenant. Okay, that's what they say. That's how they construe it. The third one is a post-fall thing. It's after the fall. But it has another thing that characterizes it, and that's that it's super time. It's out of time. It's above time. It's something that God puts on offer in all generations of history that comes to be, it's out there in God's mind, in God's intention, in God's purpose, but then that thing comes to be administered, it says, in different periods of time. Let me try to put this all together for you. Look at the chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Again, I don't want to get into (laughs) thorny details looking to contrast um, Westminster with London, Uh, but I will tell you that many of the faults of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Baptists have taken whole hog and agreed with it. Now, the first thing is, it begins the idea with covenant in terms of the sovereignty of God or the majesty of God or the transcendence of God um, being great. The distance, it says, between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures, creatures that have reason like Adam and Eve, you and me, do all obedience unto him as their creator... We're going to bring in a new category. It's not just a creator-creature distinction. Um, It's the fact that yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. See see what they're doing. They're saying this matter of the the decree is so onerous, we have God humbling himself, God condescending. And God entering into covenant relations with people to kind of bridge the gap between the distance between the creature and the creator. So just keep that in mind. That's what they're saying is the basis of it. Now, is there any biblical support to this? Is there any way that they're even telling us how it is that covenant bridges the gap between the creator and the creature? I mean, does the distance between the creator and the creature lessen because God enters into covenant? It's still, if this is this insuperable gap that exists where God cannot have any real um, relationship and, and man cannot have any real benefit in terms of obedience or disobedience before God, but by covenant, how does covenant do this? It, it doesn't really tell the mechanism of it. It doesn't really say that covenant is really the answer to the problem at all. In fact, I don't think the Bible tells us that covenant is the answer to the problem. We'll tell you what the answer to the problem is when we get to the exposition part of this. I just want to look at the history of this thing, just to give you an idea of what they're saying. And then it says in the second um, um, paragraph, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works where life was promised to Adam and him, him to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. And certainly there's elements of truth in that. Adam was to be personally and perfectly obedient to God in all of his commandments. And what his fall affected his posterity. But what's absent is anything in scripture that says that there is a covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden. 
Just, it's not defined for us that way in the scriptures. But then, in the third paragraph, it says, Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, so the covenant of works blew it for us all, the covenant of works brings everyone under condemnation, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace. Now, where it's commonly called the covenant of grace, I don't know. In Dutch theology, it's commonly called the covenant of grace. I just don't think it's commonly called the covenant of grace in, in, in God's word. Uh, the covenant is spoken of, grace is, coven- is spoken of, covenant of grace to be placed together, et- everlasting covenant, eternal covenant. I'm not sure we really find that language. But what is the substance of this covenant of grace? Well, look at what it's saying. When he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Hey, that sort of seems like God's putting Christ on offer to people to receive him, to come to him. There's nothing here about eternal election, nothing here about divine purpose. It's God offering Jesus to people. So human responsibility is what's placed here. So you know you go to and it's not un, it's not unplaced in the statement on the decree. I mean, it says it doesn't violate the will of men. It clearly mentions the fact that whatever we make of divine decree, it doesn't make people robots. It doesn't take away their freedom. It, it just it makes the legitimacy of secondary causes, it says. That's a philosophical notion. Don't need to deal with that. But it's not looking to, de- to deflect the responsibility of people to receive Jesus and to come to God in, through faith in Christ. But notice, that, that's, that's God... Freely offering Jesus to people. Freely offering unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Stop there. If a covenant is made, freely offering unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, who's the parties to that covenant, do you think? Who's who's God making that covenant with? You would think at that point it's the sinners who he's offering life and salvation to, right? So it's something that's offered unto human beings who hear the gospel. So it's God and humanity that's involved in this covenant. But then it says, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved. And then, listen to this now, promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Wait a minute. If he's offering Jesus to faith, that's something that's the free offer of the gospel to sinners. But now there's something else that enters in here. You see, because Calvinists can't get rid along of the doctrine of the decree of a sovereign determinant of God who's looking to um, express his sovereignty in all of this. They combine together the thing that addresses human responsibility and the thing that also addresses divine sovereignty. So you tell me who's party to this covenant. It seems it's God and sinners on the one hand, but then again it's God promising to who? To give to those that are ordained to eternal life as Holy Spirit. Who's he promised that to? To make them willing and able to believe? Well, they haven't believed yet, but not to make them willing and able to believe. That's not a covenant made with sinners calling them to faith and repentance. So you see, it's looking to fuse together this matter of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and why are they doing it? 
Because they're living in the 17th century Holland where the church doctrine is under attack and they're feeling something of a pressing need to make God a little bit more amenable to sinners, a little bit more gracious to sinners in order to put Christ on offer through this means of covenant. So they're bringing this doctrine of covenant through a covenant that's an eternal covenant that's pre-time, a covenant of works that's pre-fall, a covenant of grace that's supra-time, but yet it tends to get filled with confusion because they have feel, they have an agenda. They have something they want to accomplish through all of this. And none of this is something that you're going to find in the Word of God. Sorry, but you're not. You're not going to find this. You'll find elements of it, yeah, because they're concerned with elements of Bible truth. But you're not going to find this. And you're certainly not going to find this in terms of the matter of covenant. And you see, the problem is, when you are using the doctrine of a covenant to try to deal with something else, you're looking to deal with divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how that comes together, and you want to use covenant to that end, you're not going to Scripture saying, Lord, what does covenant mean anyhow? And in what context? You have an agenda. You want to deal with the criticism against the churches in terms of their doctrine of salvation that people are saying is just too harsh. You've got you to give us something to involve human activity and human responsibility into this whole thing. And, and, and that's how this came. It's historical. It came in history. It came from people that are trying to do something that's not just asking the question, what does covenant mean? And then the people today that are taking this doctrine of covenant theology, and they're looking to use it for something that not even the Dutch Calvinists were using it for. They're using it to say, Baptists can't be reformed. (laughs) That unless you baptize your infants, you can't hold to the Reformation doctrines, or you're just excluded from having affinity with that, or, or calling yourself that because it's ruled out of court. Because they're looking to use it in order to enforce a confessional subscription that is rigid. And our statement of the confession says this. And I think the problem is, again, that we're, we're, we're looking to have an agenda. And, and the best thing to do when we come to God's word and we come to try to figure out what's the truth of the Christian teaching is not to have an agenda except to say, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. What actually does the scriptures say? But this stuff is done all together too often in theology, is that people have an agenda. They want to prove something, and then you know they, they state this, and they state that, and they state the next thing, and then a lot of people that go and read that say, oh yeah, we believe all that, and sometimes they forget what the agenda was to begin with, just as it becomes the new, or, the new orthodoxy. <laughs> And then they write books on, what does St. Paul actually teach? But they never tell you what the agenda is. You lose sight of what the agenda is. This is now the orthodoxy. This is what everybody's supposed to believe. This is what we're to put in our confessions. I was listening to a, a guy, in some lectures he was giving on the book of Genesis. And um, he was talking about the fact he's not a scientist. Um, and in essence, he's not a theologian, though he's talking about science and theology and how Genesis and the creation narratives, how that all squares with the modern um, statements that scientists make and that theologians make. 
And he said, I, I don't think I'm, I know I'm not a scientist, and uh, some have called me it. I, I don't even relate to the idea of being a theologian. Although, you know, anybody that talks about God's a theologian, because that's words about God. So you're a theologian, whether you like it or not, or know it or not. As soon as you talk about God, you're a theologian. This question, are you a good theologian or are you a bad theologian? But he said his task, as he conceives it, is that of a textual analyst. A textual analyst. In other words, he's somebody who takes the text of God's word, and his question is, what's here? What's here? Let's analyze it. Let's see exactly what it is God has said. And first of all, get that in focus. What, what is said in the word? What is said in scripture? And then what does that mean in the context in which it is said, in the context of, let's say, ancient literature? What is it? And so when you think about covenant, you know, back in the 17th century, when they're doing this stuff about covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, you know, they're dealing with the Bible. The Bible talks about covenants. But you know, archaeology has brought about the reality of documents from all over the ancient world in which Israel lived, in which the Canaanites made covenants. And we have covenant documents that are Canaanite covenant documents. We have today Assyrian covenants and Sumerian covenants and Babylonian covenants all over the ancient Near East. Covenant was a way to regulate relationships. Abraham's making covenants with Abimelech, the king. He's making covenants with people in the land that he's living with. And in a real sense, is these reality of, 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 of ancient Near East covenants that sheds a lot of light upon the word of God. Because, again, God does not speak just from heaven without regard to the human condition. He speaks within the human condition. He speaks within the context of the life of the nation of Israel, the things that they were accustomed to. And then when he spoke of covenant, every one of them would have known what he meant. Now, does every American know what a covenant is? No. It's not something that is common. We don't enter into covenants. You want to talk about a contract? Yeah. And sometimes covenant and contract get conflated. People think that a covenant is a contract. And sometimes that gets taught. But that's not necessarily true. But we have to get our ideas from the Bible as to what a covenant is and what constitutes a covenant. And there's a a number of ways to do this. But I would say, first of all, when you look at the creation account and you look at what's commonly uh, claimed, that creation itself brought about a covenant in Eden, a covenant of works, because the Creator God could not have relationships with human creatures, nor could human creatures have any benefit from Him apart from this covenant, We have to ask why that was not in some way expressed, recognized, stated in some fashion in the creation narrative. Again, there's no question that God is a God of transcendent majesty and glory. And putting together the thought of how a transcendent God intersects with a creation, how an eternal God intersects with creatures of time, how an infinite God intersects with creatures of finite 
nature, how an omnipresent God intersects with people who have local presence. Again, philosophically, you tear your hair out. Because we can't even think about what omnipresence means. We can't even think about what eternity means and really have a concept of it. For us, everything has a beginning and an end. Everything has finite proportions. And so we're dealing with a God who's not like man. And yet, the sense in which man is like God. There's the thing that ties together God and his relationship with man is God's creation act. It's not his covenant. It's his creation act. Let us make man in our image. After the image of God made he man, male and female made made he man. He made mankind after his own image and after his own likeness. So there's something about humanity made in the image of God which can have relationship with God. It's something that's bound up in our createdness that we have been made for him. It's not a covenant idea. It's a creation idea of God's relationship to man. That God walks with the man in the garden in the cool of the day. How we did it, again, somehow location, somehow an angel, somehow maybe the angel of the Lord. It's not expressed to us, but God speaks to the man. God commands the man. God judges the man. God, There's a relationship that exists. And it's a relationship that's bound up in creation. When does covenant begin? The first mention of covenant in the Old Testament is after the flood. Now why would the flood be a factor that might make a covenant necessary? Well, again, it helps to understand what a covenant is. I don't have the references before me. Maybe next week I'll pick up on this if we choose to continue with this is the idea that a covenant is an oath-sworn promise. Again, some of the Psalms, it speaks of the covenant he made, the promise that he swore through a thousand generations. And you know, when you have that Hebrew poetry, in which you have one line of the poetry that expresses a covenant, and then the next line explains what a covenant is. It's the oath that he swore through a thousand generations. It's God's oath. God makes an oath-sworn pledge. Why would God make an oath-sworn pledge after the flood. Well, the fact is that he brought the flood about because the earth was corrupt. And because, as it says in Genesis chapter 6 and um, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted it. He made man on the earth. Again, this is the anthropomorphic language. God knew what he was going to do all the time. He's the eternal God. But he It's like someone who says, man, this didn't work. (laughs) This whole creation thing didn't work. And so he regretted regretted he did it. It grieved him to the heart. It's kind of like you spent a lot of time, um, I don't know, making a a model airplane. (laughs) And after you put it together, it kind of looks like like nothing. It looks like nothing you can recognize as an airplane at all. You thought you were following the directions, but it was simply, it got ruined, or somebody came along and ruined it, and you just trash it. So what's the use? Well, that sort of thing is something we see that God is experiencing. And so the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man, animals, creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry I've made them. 
But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so the flood came, the earth is destroyed, the people, the sinners of the earth are judged. And then when you see Adam coming out of the ark, in verse uh, 20 of chapter 8, it says that uh, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of it, every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So the seven clean animals was for the purpose not just of procreating the animals, but offering up of sacrifices. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, I will never curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Wait a minute, wasn't that the reason God brought the flood? Wasn't that the reason God brought the flood? Well, you see, the flood served to wipe the, wipe the sinners off of the earth and it cleansed the earth. It cleansed the earth. But it didn't cleanse human nature. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not even a universal flood can take away the sins of mankind. And so if God was going to just view the evil of the human heart, man's heart is evil from his youth, every 10, 15, 20 generations, he's going to bring another flood, another flood, another flood, another flood. Imagine living in a world like that. It's very uncertain, right? How do we know what tomorrow will bring if we're just living in the light of the fact that we're going to get blotted out tomorrow because we're evil from the youth, uh, from youth. Sin's proliferating. Look at the violence. Look at all the conditions that in our generation in many ways is worse than the generation that took the people away in the flood. God then enters into covenant for the very purpose of establishing regularity in the world. That there will not be a destruction of the proportions that you see happening at the flood. And so chapter nine and verse uh, chapter nine and verse nine, behold I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. God takes an oath and swears, I will never again curse the ground because of man. He takes a, 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 um, an oath establishing a covenant. I will never again cut off all flesh by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I know early in the week he says, it says nothing here about smoke. Maybe we're going to get destroyed off of the earth because of smoke. But no flood. We can guarantee that. At least not a universal flood that's going to destroy the world. And then God gives the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. So the purpose of the covenant was God giving an oath-sworn pledge for man's benefit. So the way to live in constant fear, what's the use of having children? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Everything is just going to be destroyed. And we're constantly living in the end. I mean, we're all living in the end times. Jesus is going to come at any moment. But we don't know that that's a thousand years from today. But we know there will be regularity in the earth until Jesus returns. And that's based upon the fact that God has entered into a covenant. God's made a covenant with creation. Not to destroy the creation like he did with the flood. Until the return of Christ. And that's the principle you see at every point. God's not making a covenant because God needs a covenant. He needs a covenant because we need a covenant. Because we live in a very uncertain world. We live with very uncertain feelings. We live with the sense that even though we have all these divine promises, wait a minute, maybe they're, maybe, well, could it be? 
uh, will do like an Abraham. How do I know that these things will be? And that's the very reason God enters into covenants, is to give an oath-sworn promise, as Hebrews says, by two things that are unshakable. We might have strong hope. And the two things are that God promises and God swears an oath that his promise is good. And we don't have time to look at it now, but the end of the oath-swearing promise uh, covenant is that if he doesn't keep his promise, he, he will not, not exist. He, he swears upon himself. God swears upon his own being. He swears upon his own life. Hebrews says he can swear upon nothing greater, so he swears upon himself. You know, when you swear upon yourself, you're saying, may I be dead. And we'll see there was a little covenant ritual that they did with the cutting up of animals. Maybe they did that at the flood. They certainly did it with Abraham, and they certainly did it in the book of Jeremiah. We have these incidents where animals are severed, and you, you pass through the, the pieces, and, and, and it's a very powerful visual thing. If I don't keep the covenant, then may I be as these dead, severed animals. But it's in Genesis that it's God that passes through the pieces. <laughs> It's not the people, it's God. God's swearing upon his own existence. He's swearing upon his own life. God will sooner go out of being than cease to keep his promise. And folks, that's what we need. God doesn't need covenants. We need covenants because we're fallen creatures. And we need that promise sworn by an oath to give us hope, to buttress our confidence and assurance and faith that these promises will un failingly be kept that's a Bible covenant that's why covenants exist in the Bible not to explain decrees not to define who gets baptized not to do anything else but to give strong confidence and hope to the heirs of the promise right that's what happens when you are a textual analyst and really analyze the text for what's there, what in fact is being said in the times and climate and context in which the thing is being said okay well I'll have a little bit more to say on this maybe next week but I hope at least this has been helpful in terms of seeing the dangers of history it could be a nose of wax you can twist it whatever way you want but let's be honest with history Let's be honest with the Bible and let's not have our agenda that's something different than the agenda of knowing what the Lord is teaching us. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can be in your house on this Lord's Day. We're thankful we can be taught and instructed by history on the one hand and the mistakes of history, not to repeat those mistakes. And Lord, we can be most importantly informed by your word We pray you teach us to be good readers of the word, good analyzers of the things that scripture says, to to ask the right questions and not to come with a preset agenda or try to find out how we can use the scriptures to further some, some purpose that is in our hearts but has never entered yours. We ask you to be pleased to hear our prayers. We ask you to be pleased to be with us as we worship this morning, as we fellowship with one another. We pray that, Lord, you'd be glorified in our midst as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.